Hi, this is Mike Morris. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. You know that in the past several episodes, we've been talking a lot about wrongfully convicted people trying to get their convictions overturned. We're talking about bad uh, defense counsel at the beginning. And one name that keeps coming up that's trying to fix this problem that's sitting on the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission is attorney John Shea. And if you talk to any lawyers in town, who's the best criminal defense attorneys, John's name comes up time and time again in the first two, three names that you're going to hear. So John has unique insight into this problem. He's on the ground volunteering lots and lots of hours a year to fix it. And he will be able to help us understand what the MIDs, what, what the MIDC is actually doing to improve bad court appointed counsel and all things related to that. So let's welcome John Shea to the show. Joining us this morning is Mike Morris and Corey's top attorney. Mike Morris. Mike Morris is in here to tell us about the backpack giveaway. We are adapting, adapting, and change things up a little bit every year. Hi, Michael. Hi, John. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So, you know, you, you've listened to some of our past episodes of Open Mic. You, you listened to Professor Primus talk about all the problems with, you know, indigent defense and court-appointed counsel. We had somebody out of Boston talking about how bad Michigan was, like one of the top three, four states in the country delivering indigent defense uh, counsel. And... You know, every time I look deep, and I've looked deep into at least four different people who've had their convictions overturned, and what I keep coming to, and I keep talking about on this podcast, is that it starts, besides bad cops, bad prosecutors, things like that, things that we can control, it comes, out to, comes down to bad lawyering at the beginning, starting at maybe the bail hearing, you know, moving on. And the four that I've de delved deep into... The people have been all disbarred. The defense attorneys have all been disbarred after multiple disciplines, which means the courts are, are assigning bad defense lawyers to poor people and they're getting crappy defense. They're getting convicted with crappy defense and the judges aren't protecting them. The prosecutors aren't doing anything about it. They're probably loving it. And then all of a sudden the MIDC gets a, gets uh, started uh, four years ago, I believe, and, and you're appointed to it. And I'm, I'm reading your reports, believe it or not. I don't know how many people are reading your 43-page reports, but I, I read your 2019 report. I read the other reports, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful work you guys are doing. So I know that's a long intro, intro but I want to go back in time, and I know you're very familiar with this, but how did we get here? And how did the MIDC get started? And then I want to I want to go from there. Okay. Well, let me give you a a sort of a I'll try to make this a make it a brief history. Michigan actually back in the day, and I'm talking a hundred years ago, was in the forefront of of, of um, states recognizing the importance of the Sixth Amendment in felony cases. Michigan was an early jurisdiction that actually provided for by statute. Um, the appointment of counsel at state expense to people charged with serious crimes. Um, the problem is that, uh, like many um, ostensibly state obligations that we can we can see, you know, it's the state obligation to provide education, it's the state obligation to provide envir environmental quality, it's the state obligation to provide mental health services. It's the state of the state's obligation under the Sixth Amendment and under Michigan's old statutes to provide indigent defense. But they devolved the obligation down to the county level. And so you had 83 different counties providing indigent defense services 83 different ways through 83 different funding units, actually more because when district courts were established, you had more funding units in each county. So last time I think we were funding uh, systems, we funded 134 um, and you and and so this this I, 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 you see this in some of the reports this patchwork quilt of different ways of doing things and different pots of money with which to do it happened and um, when it comes to the criminal justice system and law enforcement priorities 
the public's focus is on police and prosecutors and jails and corrections officers. It's not on defense attorneys. And so the focus um, and the funding necessary to support the defense attorney role um, was just ignored. It was simply ignored. And counties made do with what they had. And frankly, there wasn't a lot of public support for spending more on indigent defense than, say, on, you know, K through 12 education. You know, how can you blame uh, a parent from saying, spend more, don't take money away from my kids' schools, you know, to give it to this guy who's charged with breaking and entering a bunch of homes in my neighborhood. Uh, and that, and so we, we got we got that way. We've known it. There were huge um, challenges to the the status quo back in the seventies, uh, in the mid seventies. Um, there were I wrote some of these down. The NLADA actually, which did Michigan's race to the bottom report, which you referenced. Um, they did a juvenile court report back in nineteen seventy four, whose whose um, recommendations were ignored. In 1975, the State Bar commissioned uh, a huge uh, task force to study indigent defense uh, in Michigan and, and, and created another very nice coffee table report that sat on coffee tables and got ignored. The one positive thing that happened in the 70s, in 1979, the Appellate Defender Act was, was, uh, was passed and the State Appellate Defender Office came into being and they're a beacon of good lawyering but they only handle 25% of the appellate level stuff. Maybe it's 50% now. Still, nonetheless, not everything. They're great. So that's, that's just to slow down because we have lots of people who don't know what that means. This, this it's Sado, I think, is the Sado, is correct. the, uh, and they do they write appeals under the Sixth Amendment. They they have a court appointed right to an appeal. So if they lose, Sado or another, it sounds like court appointed attorney will take on their appeal. And will appeal their their case. And the, and the other thing I wanted to clarify when you when when you're talking about they don't want to fund it, they want to put all the money here. As Professor Primus pointed out in one of our last podcasts, that means that inadequate prepared lawyers are making hundreds of dollars to represent somebody through a full case. Basically, that's that's what we're talking about. There there there's no money, so they're getting bad lawyers with no training. No supervision, no oversight, making two to four hundred dollars to handle major some major even if, even even if it's a thousand dollars to handle a murder case, or even if it's three thousand dollars to try a murder case, it's an abysmally low. We were paying. Let's see when 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 the the so so to bring it to bring it forward thirty years in nine in 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 um in in uh in two thousand six. There was a big drumbeat. The Campaign for Justice had started a task force. I served on it back in 2003. Um, we were really pushing hard for reform in this area. We had a lot of public support. Um, the, the, the state Senate and the state House um, uh, passed a joint resolution to have the NLADA come in and study Michigan system, which they did. And they issued a report in 2008. The joint resolution was in 2006. NLADA comes in in 2008 or issues a report in 2008. And um, I'm looking at page seven of that report. Michigan came in seventh from the bottom of the 50 states in per capita spending. Seventh. I mean, Horrible. Alabama and Tennessee and all these places that we like to think we're ahead of uh, in, in many ways were, were sort of arrogant that way. We, we weren't. We were way behind them. And um, that finally is what led to Governor Snyder, of all people, a Republican governor with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, to set up the Indigent Defense Advisory Commission in 2011, which I served on. We, we issued a report in 2012 recommending that the, that the, the, uh, the state set up uh, the Indigent Defense Commission to develop statewide standards and to enforce statewide standards across all 83 counties in Michigan. And that's what the Indigent Defense Commission is doing now. And we're still babies. We've only had two fiscal years where we have actually been able to get appropriations money and sent to the boots on the ground. Uh, we're about to um, engage in our compliance planning review for our third fiscal year. Uh, um, our job 
is to, as I said, promulgate standards that have statewide applicability and then enforce those standards at the local levels of government. We, we can't, we, we are not a top-down public defender agency. That's not what our jurisdiction is. Our job is to establish minimum standards by which indigent defense systems should operate and to enforce those standards um, and to get a money from the state to supplement the meager amounts they have locally to allow them, they'll give them a fighting chance of doing it. So that's sort of a where we came from, where we're at, and yeah. what my job is. You're trying to fix a system, a broken system. But do you agree with Professor Primus? She brought up this point that I didn't um, think of, was that why do we have 83 separate offices trying to figure this out? And now we have an organization, your organization, MIDC, to, to, to try to give them the rules. She, I think she proposed one office to oversee all 83 counties so it would be uniform, it would be under one umbrella. It wouldn't be so cookie cutter. Um, and then I talked to somebody from Boston. I think it's called the Sixth Amendment Clinic. He was on the podcast. And he says that's not the best way to go. Where, where do you fall in those two categories? Well, um, did you talk? Who were you talking about? David Carroll? Yes. Dave, David was a consultant to us when we were when the advisory commission was making it. Smart one, man. Of reasons, one of the reasons I think David does not uh, believe in a top-down system is because they haven't worked. Uh, they haven't been able to get consistent enough funding, and they haven't been able to get statewide buy-in. So they tried it in Minnesota; it didn't work very well. They've tried it; they tried it in Oregon; it didn't work very well. Um, and Snyder's approach uh, was: listen, we got to fix this problem. It's a bad problem. We're we're, we're causing it. Forget the just the general human pain and the human injustice in it. It's actually just not smart policy. We're incarcerating more people than we need to for longer than we need to. We are we are already robbing from our roads and our schools because we have a corrections department, which is 40 percent of our general funds budget. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way if we have a better functioning criminal justice system. So part of what 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 forces governors and legislatures to think about this is if they don't think about it, they're just throwing money down another rat hole because they're not putting money where they should be up front. You, I, listen, that's a very big point, you know, that by incarcerating more people is costing us more money. If you take that money from the saving of the incarcerations and give it to getting these people good defense, you're going to save a ton of money. That's a really good point that we haven't covered yet, but it makes, it's like, makes a ton of sense. And I like that Snyder, you know, connected those dots. It's yeah. It's like, duh. You know, I mean, it, it's not it's it, it's it's not a hard concept to grasp. And David Carroll believes that that probably um, a, a a a locally controlled way of applying statewide standards, if properly overseen and properly enforced, you're going to find more creativity. What works in Keweenaw isn't necessarily going to work in Bay City. Isn't necessarily going to work in in St. Joe's. Isn't necessarily going to work in Detroit or Ann Arbor. Right. You know, so that's that's the reason. And you also get more local buy in into your system. If you think you have more local control over how that system is going to be um, administered. So, you know, frankly, we're, we're babies. We don't really yeah. know. So yeah. we're, we're trying it this way and we're going to and we're going to see what kind of progress we make. So I, I, I like I said, I read your report. Um, you know, you, you guys came up with four standards for your first go around for your first year, which sound to be implemented in 95% of the courts, uh, education and training for defense counsel, uh, making sure that initial interview happens within three days, investigation, um, money to have investigators go out and investigate the crime, uh, and experts and, uh, counsel at bail hearings. And, 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 or at the first appearance, most of that is pretty self-explanatory and smart and basic. So how, I mean, I'm reading this report, it's 43 page report. I know your fingerprints are all over it. It's very detailed. It's very smart. It's very good. I'm thinking, you know, there's, I think the number was like, there's 300,000, uh, initial court appearances that, that 
we had that you guys made sure that there was a competent defense attorney at that first hearing. And I, I assume my, my first question is before that, the first hearings were not mandatory. That was probably happening much less frequently, if not at all. Is that true? Yes. So let me just give you my own experience. Uh, when I started doing criminal defense work in 1988 or 89, um, and I was taking state court appointments. I didn't know any better. I, I, you know, I, I got my appointment after the person was arraigned, after the person had a bond set. Sometimes they were in jail. Sometimes they were out. But it had nothing to do with me. I got appointed after that, after that point in time. And that, in my experience, was the way the entire state worked. Very, very, very few jurisdictions had counsel there at the arraignment proceeding. And um, if somebody hired me, I went to the arraignment. So that tells you right there the inequity in the system. If someone paid me to be their lawyer, if I was retained counsel, I had the I was retained before they were charged usually, certainly before they were arraigned. And I would go to court and I would advocate for them when it came to bond. And my and my and my outcomes were much better, right? Again, another Your outcomes were they they wouldn't sit in jail waiting for a trial. You'd you'd most likely be able to get them out for a cheap bail or no bail. Oh, I had it, all all other things being equal, but you know I was representing a lot of people in sex crimes cases back then. If it was a retained sex crimes case, I usually got them out. If I was appointed to them in a sex crimes case, they were usually sitting in jail. I had to file so a motion to get them out. So let's talk about that for one second. Again, I, I get lots of feedback on these podcasts that I just say things that people assume that, that I assume that people understand. So I too did. Uh, 15 court appointments in my life when in 1992, when I was a baby lawyer, mostly like Royal Oak Southfield area. And you're right. You'd get the letter or a fax and it'd be like, you know, your person was charged with this. He's sitting in jail on a $500 bond. Uh, go, go meet with him. Right. And so, so that was happening before lawyers were appointed, even though we were appointed. I mean, I would have showed up and they let, let me know, but it is the reason John that, that was so, it's a hundred years of history that bail is being set. Bond is, you know, bond is happening without the lawyer and um, we're going to set it low enough that most people can deal with it if, 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 you know, in most circumstances, because they were pretty typical, $250, $500. These weren't, I mean, I was doing drug drivings mostly. These weren't crazy uh, amounts, but it was, was it just protocol, routine, like you said, when you stepped into the system, it was how it was done. That's how it was done. Like nobody questioned it. Exactly. Yeah, it was. It was, Michael. It was cook it was cookie cutter. You'd have a magistrate, you know, who yeah. said, Okay, drunk driving first, that's that's a two hundred and fifty dollar bond, because that's what they always did. Drunk driving second, that's a five hundred dollar bond. And 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 the magistrate might think, Well, geez, that's not that much money. If I were in jail with I I'd be able to post two fifty. But how many of our clients, how many indigent people sit there for weeks? lose their job, lose their Section 8 housing, maybe lose their kids because their ex says, well, you know, he's in jail, so I'm going to take the kids back because they don't have $250. They might not right. have enough money. To, they might not have a family member who will take a collect call. So I'm sure you're familiar with the bail project? Yes. Because I know they work out of Washington County. I didn't know that we could disrupt the system, but I'm also hearing that certain prosecutors um, – and mayors are against, you know, bail for nonviolent offenders. And that's going to, that's, are you seeing that movement? Is that a, something that's happening in Washtenaw County and the other counties you're in? Washtenaw County has always been pretty good when it comes to that. I mean, for a long, we, we, we had, for a long time, we had a very small jail. We couldn't afford to have your first offense possession of marijuana people, you know, driving while license suspended, first offense drunk drive. We couldn't afford to have them uh, in the jail. We didn't have space for them. So, there were some physical constraints, um, and I think that sort of helped the culture here. But um, it, Washtenaw County isn't the problem or, or shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be what systemically do we do? And, you know, this has been, a, a, again, an, another big area of focus. You've got the jail task force that was co-chaired by the lieutenant governor and the chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. They yep. have issued a whole bunch of recommendations after a Pew study was done here. I think you're seeing a real groundswell, and you're going to see some legislation. There's already been legislation introduced 
uh, to follow up on those reports and those recommendations. It's a real groundswell toward being smarter about holding people who are constitutionally still presumed to be innocent in jail on stuff where they're not a danger to society and they're not a flight risk. One of the things that lawyers should learn very early on when you go to court is the Michigan court rules say you don't get to set a money bail unless the court finds the person is a flight risk or a danger to society. But many judges got into the habit of ignoring that. The 250 bucks for the first offense drunk driver is ignoring that court rule. Right. You're seeing more, much more pushback on that lately. I like to think that of those first four standards, that counts, they're all important. But the, but the counsel at first appearance, I think, has made the biggest immediate impact on the state of Michigan in terms of our jail utilization and in terms of our pretrial population. There was a study done before we adopted that statute out of 55th District Court. Um, Tom Boyd had a pilot project where before he was even an indigent defense commissioner, and he was for many years, he said, I'm going to get money and I'm going to fund counsel at first appearance and we're going to see how it changes jail utilization in Ingham County and how it changes jail utilization with my co-judge next door and, and outcomes. And it made all kinds of sense. People were out more. People resolved their cases faster because they they, they were um, able to speak with a lawyer sooner. Right. Um, and all in all, it saved the system money. So it was, in addition to the constitutional imperative, this is a critical stage of the proceeding, that, and the Sixth Amendment requires somebody to be there. It just, again, makes good sense. And now that we have lawyers at every arraignment, every first appearance, every bond hearing throughout the state, you're seeing smarter bond decisions. I still think we have bonds that are too high. I still think we over-jail people for things we shouldn't be, but it's not as bad. We've already made progress. We have more progress to make. That's, I mean, fabulous. I didn't know there was that study. I have not seen that study. But the, the Bell Project, just for people watching, it's a free organization uh, out of, out of uh, it's out of Wayne County, but they go to Oakland, they'll go to mostly Washington. And if somebody has a bail under $5,000 set, they will get you out at no cost to you. And there's, I asked this question, is there any one you won't get out? And they said, they thought about it. They said, if it's under $5,000, there's no stipulations unless it's their third offense at the same thing. We're not going to get people out to go home and hurt Do the people. same thing. So, so, but so basically, and, and, and they're having a uh, problem that the word isn't on the street. If you Google bail Wayne County, they don't come up barely. Um, it's all the paid for places that come up. So I'm just trying to make awareness, uh, as much awareness for them as possible. Because the statistics that they cite, John, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but I'm going to say for our, our listeners and viewers, if you're bail, if you, if you, if you get, if you're held on bail, you have a 92% chance that you're going to plead guilty to something. If you're let out on bail, that 92% drops to 50% because of what you just said two minutes ago, that they get to meet with their lawyers, they have home support, they haven't lost their kids, they haven't lost their family. Instead of sitting in jail and a prosecutor comes in, hey, you want to go home? You want to go back to your job? Just plead guilty and I'll let you home right now. Absolutely. And, 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 I, and I think this bail conversation is like mind-blowing to me who doesn't do who doesn't do criminal you know law but it's like i love that that's on your your first four list and i didn't read between the lines really that that was the focus but it sounds like that was the impetus to counsel at the first hearings not just to make sure everything else is going good it's to make sure they can get out the only thing that happens at arraignment besides being told what you're charged with and a preliminary exam getting set is the bail gets set. It is the single most important thing to that client. Am I getting out? Um, and, you know, there's another statistic that you might ask the bail project people about. I don't know if I have a report on it at hand. But, yes, there's a huge incentive if you're in jail to plead guilty in order to get out of jail. But there is also, there's also a cohort of those people in jail who aren't going to get out of jail even if they plead guilty. And, and there is a correlation between getting released on bail and staying out of jail on your sentence, ultimately, and being not released on bail, staying in jail, and staying in jail and getting, getting sentenced to an additional jail um, punishment 
um, uh, uh, if, if you're convicted ultimately. So people who don't get out tend to be punished more harshly than people who do get out. Interesting. Harsher sentencing. I will ask them about that. I, I didn't know that. Um, you know, there's a wonderful TED talk by the woman who started the Bell Project who talks about all these statistics. And, you know, there's half a million people in our country sitting in jail, presumed innocent, like you said, waiting for trial. And most of them are nonviolent offenders who should be out, who should be out with their families and, and kids and, and getting good legal counsel at home. Right. It's, it, it's a major problem that I, quite frankly, John, I don't think people know about. I, well, I'm a lawyer and I didn't know about it. So like, I'm so happy to bring this to light and try to just get as many people to hear it because I think there's defense attorneys, young defense attorneys who are going to do these bail, who are, who, who are making the 150, $250 don't know some of this stuff. I mean, well, maybe they do now because of your program teaching them. We're training them better. And, and, and also I got, you know, we went from like, uh, let's see what, before the NIDC, we had Washtenaw County had a public defender office. Saginaw had a public defender office. Muskegon may have just started a public defender office, and Lenaway may have just started. But now we have like a dozen. Um, now we have like a dozen um, uh, uh, de de public defender. We need more p public defender offices. And you so you're an advocate for that. Like Wayne, let's talk about Wayne Counties, the yep. largest county in the state. Yep. They have the largest public defender's office that just came in from from New York. From a, yeah. who, who who you guys is it was it your commission who picked them? No 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 no. We we, Wayne again, County? we don't impose Wayne the the local system picks how they're going to implement indigent defense services. We review their compliance plans, and if they say we're going to do it through a public defender office, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is the people that we're looking for, then you know if it seems like they're going to meet our standards, we bless it. But they they make the decisions. It truly is a local decision. So, so in your opinion, having uh, a standalone public defender office is better than judges or, or an administrative person saying, here are cases, Mr. Uh, you know, young defense attorney who needs to make money. Well, those are, those are, there's two issues there. First of all, um, judges, I don't care whether it's a public defender office or it's a panel attorney or it's a con judges shouldn't be making the decisions about who gets appointed and who doesn't. And that's, are the they still, thing. are they still doing that? Less, but we haven't, we're, 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 we have, we have proposed the standard of judicial independence. It's one of the most critical, but it's also one of the most contentious. I am cautiously optimistic that this year we are going to get approval of that standard, um, and it'll be a statewide standard. But yeah. Tell me why it's so dangerous. Um, well, it's critical because if, a, if, a, if an attorney who's taking a private appointment thinks that um, part of his or her bread and butter relies on that judge continuing to appoint him or her, then you're not necessarily going to, you, you're going to have a disincentive to be zealous in a way that that judge doesn't appreciate. You might think a case needs a certain level of defense. You may think you need uh, an expert to vet that DNA evidence, uh, uh, but you've got a judge who thinks that's all hooey and you're just wasting uh, the judge's time, and if you keep pushing on that, you're not going to get any more appointments. That's the most direct problem that that there is. And, um, I, and I've experienced that, and we we've talked on this show um, about defense attorneys needing because the pay is so low, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of appointments a year to make a reasonable living. Right. And 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 they may not, like you said, I you know. I mean, I listen, I have lots of judge friends. I, judges are great, but they don't want to try every criminal case that comes in their courtroom. Yeah, right. I mean, I, you know, they don't, I'm not going to say they're lazy. I'm not going to say anything bad about them, but a lot of judges don't want to try cases that need to be tried. And a defense attorney who says, I'm trying this is not going to get any more court appointments. Well, right? in, in Washington, fortunately, we haven't, you know, we had a public defender office, which takes 80% of the cases of the indigence cases. And then the remaining 20% um, are, it used to be they went just from a panel. It was a blind rotation and the clerk's office did it. The judge didn't have anything to do with it. That was good. Uh, then eventually uh, some, some, at some point the, 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 uh, uh, it went, they went to a contract system for the conflicts cases. So you got a public defender that takes what they can take, but they can't take every case because they may have a conflict of interest in a particular case. You got to find another attorney to do it. 
Um, and, you know, if, if you're a public defender and you, you have represented a witness in a case against the defendant who you're appointed to represent, you can't, um, you can't represent that defendant because you're going to have to cross-examine that witness who you previously represented. So that's an example of a conflict where you have to find another lawyer. It used to be you would find, you'd use this list, um, and there were standards that you had to meet to get on the list, which the judges didn't control. Uh, and eventually they went to this contract system, which I don't like nearly as much. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an efficiency, but it's not a, it's not a good way to ensure quality. Um, but again, the judge didn't control the contract system either. So in Washington, it's, it's been, it's been okay. Um, we've heard horror stories about other parts of the state. I don't want to name names. It's, I don't practice there. It's hearsay oftentimes. In terms of the public defender's offices, where you have a concentrated population and you've got a critical mass of cases, the most efficient way, cost-effective way, and high-quality way of handling those cases is through a central public defender office. You have economies of scale. You have investigators already on staff. You have access in your budget to experts. You don't have to ask a, you know, a court to approve an expert. Um, you have symbiosity in terms of people being able to talk to each other and bounce things off of each other. Criminal defense attorneys are iconoclastic, I think, by nature. You know, uh, those of us in private practice, I mean, we it, it, it's sometimes hard for us to pick up the phone and call a colleague because we're just doing the stuff. If you're in an office where everybody else is doing it, you know, you tend to get better outcomes. You have an appellate division oftentimes. Um, you have different specialties. So in urban areas in particular, it's important to have a public defender system. If you happen to be in a, in a rural circuit, um, you might not need a public defender office. Uh, it, you might not have a caseload to justify it. At some point, the costs of an office are greater than, than the efficiencies and the, and, and the need, frankly, for it. But um, certainly in... In the major urban areas in Michigan, there should be a public defender office, in my view. And in many of the rural areas, we're seeing them band together. We're seeing two or three counties band together and form a public defender office, form a consortium, because they think it's a better way, more efficient way, more cost-effective way, and a high-quality way of handling their caseloads. So, yeah, I am a fan of them. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. It does make sense, well, right? Why not? And, and since the state is now helping fund these things, you know, and, and the locals don't have to rely on themselves anymore, but the state is putting in an enormous amount of money compared to what, compared to zero, which is what they were putting in before. Um, you know, we got 84 or 85 million for the fiscal 19 year. We got 86.7 for the fiscal FY20, which was last year. You know, we're, we're, the, we're hoping for, you know, somewhere north of $115 million for FY21, although in these uncertain times, who knows if we're going to get that right. kind of raise. But regardless, it's, it's a whole bunch more money than these people, were, these local units of government were seeing before uh, to help fund indigent defense. And uh, that's how you can make progress. So, you know, I love... I love the four standards. I love the education and the training of defense counsel. And these are only for, you know, I just want to make it clear that lawyers don't, Michigan's one of the only states that doesn't require continuing ed. I go to lots of seminars. I love to learn. I go around the country and they said, oh, Mike, you get 15 hours of credit. I said, I don't need them. I don't need that certificate. But I love that you're requiring, if a lawyer wants to handle these types of cases, they must go through 15 to 18 hours of education on their own time. They don't have to pay for it, it looks like. And that's pretty darn amazing. I, and, and I assume you're making the old school guys who've been doing this for 20, 30 years to go through the same training? I think it's, I think it's 12 hours per year for every, oh. anybody who wants to take an appointed case. If you, if you have two years or less of experience as a criminal defense attorney, you also must take a base, basic skills classes. Got it. So it was 12 to 15 or 12 to 18, I think it was. Yes. But yes, but, I'm 63 yes, years old. I got to take, if I'm, if I'm going to take appointed cases, I got to take 12 hours. And I take it anyway. And I, I as a, as a commissioner, I can't take state court appointed cases anymore because it would be a conflict. Well, but you're probably teaching the classes. So I, well, I, I taught some, but I, but I, <laughs> I, there's better trainers than I am out, out there. I'll tell you. So let's, this is, this has always bothered me. So I'm reading through these, these wrongful convictions and the thing that always gets me is 
it's the first lawyer who does a shit job and can't can't meet with the people, doesn't doesn't do any investigative work, doesn't find experts. And then I read these trial transcripts and you know, I've had Aaron Salter on my show and I've had Kenny Wanenko on the show a couple of times and I've read through other transcripts. And some of these people have alibi witnesses that the defense attorney doesn't bother to call. They have um, evidence that, you know, should have been tested that the lawyers don't even know to ask for testing. The cross-examinations are a minute long or less and they just reiterate points that the prosecution made. Um, you have judges who bully. In Kenny's case, uh, the judge gave the second court-appointed attorney two days to get ready to get ready for a serious capital rape case, um, and right. and yet a bad prosecutor. After and, Kenny fired, after Kenny fired his first lawyer for not doing for not doing his job. And so the question is, you know, what can people do? These are uneducated poor people. The family can't go out and hire you. They can't go out and hire me. What, where is that panic button? Like I'm like, and I don't even know how to teach them where the panic button is if we had a panic button, but like had people gone into these courts, had we shown, you know, put a, sh a shiny light on this, it, you know, maybe something would have changed as I'm getting deeper and deeper and I'm talking to jurors who convict. I'm talking to um, everybody, you know, I had Carl Marlinga who put away Kenny on the show talking about the, the broken system. And there's, and I, what I still can't get to is that there's no panic button. There's no way somebody could raise his hands. He did say to the judge, judge, I need more time to try this. And judge is too bad. You're, we're starting Monday. So like, then what, what is that for? What is it? The lawyer sucked. The, the, the client doesn't have enough money to hire somebody good. What are these people supposed to do at that point? I... Well, um, you know, I, I even in a perfectly functioning criminal justice system, which we are far from, um, it's a human system. And in any human system, and I say this to my clients all the time, um, you want to go to trial, that's fine, but understand it's a human system. And things don't turn out right all the time. You don't put evidence into a test tube and shake it up and, and run it through a, you know, a, a machine and there's an immutable result that's always the right one. The prosecutor's human, the cops are human, defense attorney's human, the witnesses are human, jurors are human, judges are human, and mistakes can be made even in a perfectly run criminal justice system because humans aren't perfect. Now, when you magnify the imperfections in terms of a particular role, uh, you know, people say to me, why are you a defense attorney? How can you defend those people? And, and I tell them, I defend a role. I don't, I don't just defend a human being. I do defend that human being, and I'm committed to that human being. But I'm also defending a role. You believe that we have the best justice system in the world, John Q. Citizen. Well, it only is the best justice system in the world if everybody faithfully fulfills their role, from the police who investigate it, through all the lawyers who are representing the various parties, through the judge who presides, through the jurors who take their oath, and, and, and to the, into the, you know, if the person is convicted, into the probation system and correction system. If everybody does their role, at least the system is fair in some human way. But if you, if you distort a role, if you minimize a role, if you suppress a role, like the defense role has been suppressed for decades, then you create an imbalance, and then you greatly potentiate the problem for unfair outcomes. Wrongful convictions are one manifestation of those unfair outcomes. And I, most of the defense attorneys who I know work their tails off, including those who take appointed cases. They work their tails off in, you know, in drought conditions when it comes to the resources that historically they've come to accept. Um, and, you know, what do we do as a society to change that? We change that dynamic. You know, Eve talked about it in terms of the culture. We change the culture. You, 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 you start by talking the talk, which is what the MIDC is trying to do, and the state of Michigan through the MIDC is trying to do. We believe in the defense function. We believe in a vigorous and vibrant defense function. Then you start walking the walk, and we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to give you $86 million in the last fiscal year. 
And you're going to use that to MIDC to award to local units of government who are going to give you plans to in, in, invigorate that defense function. And that's what starts changing the culture. Defense lawyers who historically haven't been able to get investigators, haven't been able to get experts, they're not lazy for not trying. They've simply learned, like Pavlov's dog, that don't ask, don't ask that question. Uh, and, they, and they try to do it the best they can another way. There is no greater sin in my, in my world than being lazy. If you're a lazy defense attorney, you're just not willing to do the work. You're never going to be any good, and you're never going to give good representation. If you work hard and you're just not getting the resources because the system's not giving them to you, but you're still working hard and trying your best, those are the people I admire. Those boots on the ground are the ones who are you know, really doing uh, yeoman's work, and I want to empower them because if I, give, if I water a plant, it's going to bloom. If I take a defense attorney who has is used to working with, you know, on a shoestring, and I say, you don't need a, a shoestring anymore. You have a wallet full of money. Use it wisely. Do your job. They're going to bloom. And that's what I, that's what I believe in. That's what right. I believe is the panic button. But I think Professor Primus, it might have been her or somebody else who, t who said, like, the average court-appointed, state court-appointed case was like $450 from beginning to end. Is that still around the number? Uh, one of the one of the standards that's on the books that hasn't been um, approved yet is a compensation standard. So we have not promulgated yet a comp a fair compensation okay. standard. And well, I appreciate well, you working on it. Yeah, we have, well it, it it's been proposed. You know the the people who have to vet it and, and we can we propose standards. We're, we're in an agency that has to approve the standard. Lara has to approve the standard. It's they've had it for a year, so they have to look at it. They got to look at budget implications and all that kind of stuff. But here's the good thing: the fact, the mere fact that we propose that standard, we have a, a we have probably I'll bet a third or more of the local funding units in the state of Michigan have already proposed without having a standard to meet already proposed to us in their compliance plan, giving their lawyers raises. We are regularly now seeing 90, 100, $110 an hour proposals for paying indigent defense attorneys, which is an enormous amount sure. more. Than and that's what without a, is that without a cap or without a? With, what, without, a without a cap. Wow. Without a cap. Now there's going to be, you know, they're going to, someone's going to have to review those invoices. It's not going to be a judge to make sure that the system isn't being gamed. But my experience with defense attorneys is, they don't need, you know. It's not like they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna lie to get another hundred dollars. You know, they just want to be fairly compensated for the work that they're putting in. And so we're going from systems that we're paying fifty bucks an hour to systems that are paying a hundred bucks an hour without even having a standard in place. So we're already changing the culture, and we're in, we're empowering people, local systems to say, hey, this would be a good idea. Let's try this, and we're encouraging that kind of thinking. So that's to me that's key because one um, somebody said it was four hundred and fifty dollars for a state case and 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 if you, you need a lot of those to make a living and, when I started, and you can't give anybody adequate defense on four hundred and fifty dollars for the total case including trial. When I started, Michael, uh, if I got a misdemeanor appointment, I think if it was a plea, it was two hundred and fifty bucks was the most I could get. I think if it was a trial. Maybe it was 450 bucks for a misdemeanor. It was a little bit more for a felony. We eventually negotiated our way to $75 an hour uh, uh, in Washington back in the oh, 15 or 20 years ago with caps for trial and with leave to ask for more money if the trial was, was prolonged. But even those cases, you know, I remember on the last state court murder case I tried and I won, I got paid, I think, $9,000. And when I computed my hourly rate, it was, you know, McDonald's rates. It was, I mean, you know, it was. Wow. Uh, and then, and then, great attorneys like you stopped taking them. I, I, I stopped taking them. I said, I'm not going to keep beating my head against the wall. You know. And so, the lawyers that I'm reading about, I mean, I'm telling you, John, every single one had multiple, multiple grievances. They all weirdly were disbarred. And it sounds like you guys are trying to put stamps in place so that doesn't happen in the last few years, but. Up until a few years ago, this was pretty rampant. I mean, I haven't read a wrongful conviction case that didn't have a court-appointed lawyer that wasn't a terrible lawyer. 
Oh, I, you know, if you talk to Dave Moran, I think Dave will tell you there are wrongful conviction cases there that that, well, that person did get good representation. Okay. Um, you can you can get you know you could have uh, a good defense expert. DNA evidence back in the day was much more primitive than it is now. Uh, you could have bad DNA evidence back in the day that a defense expert might not catch. You might have bad statistic population statistics. You might there's any number of things. But listen. Um, most wrongful convictions are overturned not on account of ineffective assistance of counsel, but on account of other things, you know, mistaken identification, hidden evidence, hidden exculpatory evidence, junk science that even a good attorney maybe might not have been able to overcome. But if you have underpaid, overworked lawyers, even if you were, as in the U.S. Supreme Court's view, constitutionally enough effective, it's not uh, a good recipe for anybody finding those other defects that lead to a wrongful conviction. And let's not focus too much on wrongful convictions. They're the canary in the coal mine. They should not be forgotten. They should be focused on. But, you know, if you if, if only 5% of felony cases go to trial, and I think I'm high on that, 95%, you might have a couple that are getting dismissed at preliminary exam or on a suppression motion, but 90 to 95% are getting pled out. Um, and those people are getting sense. There's not a trial. It's not a wrongful trial conviction there. But you still have overworked, underpaid lawyers hugely impacting the system adversely in those 90 to 95% other cases. Those are the cases that rule the world, really. And those are the cases where if the lawyer doesn't have time to do a mitigation investigation to put the client's best foot forward at sentencing, they don't have time to research the sentencing guideline defects. And so, you know, they, they forget to, they, they don't object to something they should object to in the sentencing guidelines at sentencing. If they don't do things like that because they don't have time, because they're overworked uh, and because they're not getting paid enough, then those clients are getting sentenced to more time than they should get sentenced to. If you talk to the state appellate defender office, they will tell you that of their plea-based appeals, a very large percentage of those appeals are based are, are, are due to sentence guideline errors that nobody objected to at the time of sentence. Interesting. Okay. So, that's so a, yeah. Wow. So that's know, a spinoff. That that you, the canary in the coal mine. It's interesting. You're right. You're they're one. In there. I mean, there's been the the, Medicine, the Michigan Innocence Project is the most successful in the country. They I think in the twenties. And you're right. These wrongful sentences, I, you don't read about those. You don't hear about those. Um, and you're saying that that problem is much bigger than people getting wrongfully convicted. In terms of, well, yes, in terms of the numbers. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's horrible to be wrongfully, it's horrible to be an innocent person in prison. I'm not saying that the psychic pain, the moral pain, the ethical pain is, is, is greater on those who should be punished. Um, but they're being overpunished. But I, I'm, I'm telling you that from a systems impact, which is what my focus is on, trying to change and improve systems impacts, it is a much bigger problem to society financially uh, in terms of children not having their dad or their mom for longer than they should in terms of every all the economic and collateral consequences. It is, it is a much more significant problem on the numbers the people who are being overpunished than the people who are being wrongfully convicted at trial. I, I, they're both hugely important, hugely painful, but when you've got 90 to 95% of the outcomes in the criminal justice system being plea-based, um, you damn well better have competent, effective defense counsel at sentencing or people are going to get significantly overpunished. Do you have any issue with court-appointed counsel trying to push? I mean, you're not arguing that the pleas are bad. You're arguing that the sentencing is bad. Do you have any, I mean, does this wrongful conviction stuff, does it does it morph into court-appointed attorneys who don't have the time to, to really investigate or try a case to forcing defendants into taking pleas that they shouldn't have taken? I mean, in the Aaron Salter case, that's what they did. Absolutely. And I wasn't thinking about that. You're teaching me something here. 
how does that fit in? It's it's a it's a it's a it's a different part of the same it's a different part of the same problem. It's a punishment. But most people, in my experience, and I've I've done some of this study and I've I've done some of these appeals. Um, um, it, there absolutely is a disincentive for an under for an overworked and underpaid defense attorney to plead people out. I mean, I should say to try cases. Sure. The incentive is to try the case. The incentive is to plead people out. Get the case over with, right? And it, it, and if you are that defense attorney, um, you may not do the digging you need to do in order to negotiate the best deal for your client. Your client may be guilty of something reasonably approximating what he or she is charged with, but you can get a better deal. Maybe they're not as guilty as the prosecutor says. Maybe they're not guilty of... of home invasion first degree, but they're guilty of home invasion second degree. Maybe they're not guilty of, um, of, of retail fraud first, but they're guilty of retail fraud second because of the value. Okay. That's a felony or misdemeanor issue. If you, if you're not incented or you don't have the time to do the work to say, Hey, okay, he stole something, but what he stole is worth less than a thousand dollars. That's a misdemeanor, not a felony. And you force the guy to plead to the felony, you've overpunished that human being because you haven't had the time or incentive to do your job to get the right outcome. I don't think there are as many people who are being talk, talked into pleading guilty who are wholly innocent, although I'm sure that happens. I'm sure it happens. Uh, I think the bigger problem is. You're getting people talking, talked into pleading to more than they need to plead to in order to get a negotiated resolution of the case. You'll see it on the civil end, Michael. You could have a uh, uh, a bad plaintiff's attorney who low settles a case that had that attorney only done the work would have garnered his client a much better settlement. Um, and it's the I see it all the time. You're of right. Of course you do. Of course you do. And it's the same thing in the criminal. <laughs> case. You know, it doesn't mean um, every every personal injury case is a million dollar case, but and it doesn't mean that every criminal defendant who has overpled his case was truly innocent. But it doesn't matter. The injustice is still the same. You've been punished harsher by the system, by the what you've convicted, what you're convicted of, and what you're sentenced to than you should have been. Well, I'm I'm learning a ton. We're not going to fix the problem today. Thank you for coming on, John. I'm going to ask you if you'll come back after we work on some other things that we're working on. And we have, you know, lots of interviews with with regards to this. And, and you just gave me a new avenue that I'm going to have to read more about. So I really appreciate it. Stay on the line for one second. And I'm going to wrap this uh, open mic podcast up. Thank you for watching Open Mic with John Shea. We talked about wrongful convictions. We talked about the MIDC, the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission and all the great work they're doing. And I'm learning stuff. My head's spinning right now with all the things that John just taught me. Uh, so thank you for watching. If you like the show, subscribe, please. Share it with your friends. Like, comment, send me an email about other things you'd like us to talk about on Open Mic. And thanks for watching and listening.